So I want to um, start with a different portion of Scripture and then jump back into uh, the Lord's Prayer, which I think many of you have heard before. Um, there is a passage, and actually Elijah, a pastoral resident, uh, about maybe 10, maybe two or three months ago now, spoke on this passage. But there's a point in time where Jesus encounters a man by uh, the pool of Bethsaida. And he asked the man, he's crippled, who wants uh, to get into this pool. He says to him, it's supposed to be like a magical pool, right? A pool that can essentially heal you if you get into it uh, when the water is stirred. And he says, do you want to get well? And I always found that to be such a fascinating question. Like, why would this man that's crippled, that can't walk, that's sitting next to this pool that's supposedly supposed to provide healing if you time it the right way, not want to get well? And I think that it's a peculiar question because I think at times we say we want the things, certain things, or we say we want to be healed of something, but it's actually not true. I was talking to uh, a couple of my friends who are physical therapists this week. Uh, they live in Minnesota, and they were talking about this phenomenon, like in physical therapy, that a lot of people, not just some people, a lot of people show up to physical therapy with no desire to get better with whatever ails them. Maybe they're on workers' compensation, right? And they're getting paid to be at home, and so they have no incentive to fix the shoulder that's hurting them. In fact, they, this, the one physical therapist said if they talk to a lawyer, like if there's a chance that they're going to get money from whatever they were hurt from, their success rate in physical therapy drops by 75% with one phone call from a lawyer. So this is a real question. Do you want to get well? This is a question that they actually have to ask people when they come into their office. Is this me just doing paperwork so that you can continue to, you know, to do what you want to do? Or do you really want healing? Do you really want to get well? And we're doing a series right now on the prayers of Jesus. And the idea is we want to reposition our expectation, reposition our longings. A lot of us would say we want the things of God. And I think Jesus might ask us this morning, do we really? Do we really want the things that we say that we want? And I think that this particular passage on the Lord's Prayer highlights the things that we're supposed to care about almost more than any other passage in the New Testament. Jesus is teaching his disciples what they should pray for, what they should long for, what they should go after in their lives. And so the question I would ask, for you, uh, ask of you today is, do you want these things? Do you want the kingdom to come and, the will to, and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Do you want the things of God? And I think if we begin to long for the things that, that God longs for, um, our allegiance to Jesus will grow. It's how we begin to uh, cultivate that, those longings and those yearnings in our hearts can lead us into a greater uh, intimacy with God in our lives. So before this prayer happens, uh, Jesus sort of deals with a cultural phenomenon in his own day. And I think he's addressing kind of the same thing that I was getting at before. So in the verses that I didn't have Sarah read, but in verse 5 it says this. 
he intros this prayer. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. The attention that they got, the admiration that they got, that's their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard just because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And what he's getting at is a lot of people pray to be seen as righteous, not because they actually are righteous. A lot of people pray in order to be perceived as wanting the things of God, but they don't actually want the things of God. And they've received their reward. The admiration that they get from others, the respect they get from other people because they pray well or because they have these eloquent words or because they're doing it on the street corners is all for their own attention. But if you really want the things of God, then you won't care if you're on the street corner in a room all by yourself or on a mountaintop with no one else around. You will seek the Lord. So what Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous theologian, suggests is that those who would follow Jesus can be characterized by a kind of forgetfulness, meaning that they forget themselves and they focus in on God. They're not worried about what other people are thinking. They care about the things of God. Following Jesus requires that we lose the overpowering sense of ourselves in a way. Whenever you're part of any sort of movement, whenever you're excited behind whatever's ha- like maybe you're, there's, um, I don't know, there's like a, a, a band that you like or uh, you're really tied to, yeah, that's a good example. And you just, you're like, you can kind of be like, I am, I'm a, I'm a groupie of this band. And in some ways, in order to be that, you have to lose a sense of yourself so you can give your full allegiance to this group that you're following. Some of you might have done that at some point in your life, like followed around great, a great band. But there's a sense that you, you lose a sense of self so that you can be part of this grand movement, so you can be part of this great thing that's happening. And there's a sense that when we begin to follow Jesus, we begin to forget, as to, to, not that we don't matter, or like, I'm, not, I'm not, not talking about that, I'm just saying we start to forget our, uh, um, ourselves and lift high what the movement wants and, and the person of Jesus is the leader of that movement. So when we participate in the kingdom of God, we're part of something bigger than ourselves and we start to lose ourselves. So we don't have to have the attention that prayer would bring. We can close the door because all we really want is this intimacy with the Lord and Savior. So this prayer starts off, and I'm going to cover three uh, points this morning. The first one is that uh, Jesus calls God Father. And a lot of people spend a, a ton of time on this. And I'm sure that many of you have heard a sermon about how this is uh, an unprecedented way of speaking to God. A lot of people use the idea that this is the term daddy. And I, I think that's a little bit untrue. Uh, it's just, it just means dad. It just means father. It just, it's, but it's an intimate uh, perspective on God that no one else like, you know, talked to God in this way. Father is this term of endearment. There's an intimacy and relationship 
that's deeper than other people might have. And some people get worried that when you talk about that, well, you, you compare it to your own father, right? And you'd say, well, my dad wasn't so great, so calling, you know, Godfather is a little bit triggering for me. And I would just, I would challenge you on that today and allow God's fatherhood to kind of redefine the way you think fathers should act as opposed to letting your father dictate what you think about God. We should measure all of fathers based on the father's love for the son in Jesus. So we see fatherhood. We see this understanding of this intimacy as the depth of love between Jesus and the father. And the second the second point is, the second statement is, hallowed be your name. We don't usually word, use the word hallowed, so that's a, a little bit of an odd thing. It just means um, holy be your name. Honored be your name. Blameless be your name. Set apart be your name. Like literally like clean is your name. I like to just think about it as good. <laughs> God is God good, you know? It's like you are hallowed, you are blameless, you are set apart. And so there's this, Jesus is saying, you be honored, God, because you are holy, because you are good, because you are righteous. And then the the last one, which is what I want to focus the majority of our time on today, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are thousands of books that are written on the kingdom of God. And so to try to speak about the kingdom of God in like 10 or 15 minutes is very daunting, uh, in my opinion. I I love studying about the kingdom of God. Because Jesus uses that term over and over and over again, doesn't he? And it's really important that we understand because he tells parables about people, you know, Comparing the kingdom of God God to a person who finds a treasure in a field and sells everything he has to go buy that field because the treasure is so valuable. So we should know what the kingdom of God is and what it's all about. And I think at the very core, God's kingdom is where God rules and God reigns. And in the scriptures, there seems to be this like tension. I don't, maybe not a tension, but there's this like in between. And it's this idea that Jesus has this victory at the cross and through the resurrection and the consummation. But, the, but there's this like waiting and there's this longing for the consummation, waiting for the renewal of all things. And we live in this kind of in between. That there's this divine reign that God's kingdom is active and moving and happening on earth, but it's not here in its fullness. So Jesus comes onto the scene and he starts to declare things about the kingdom of God. And it's a disruption to everyone around him. Because he's redefining what they assumed the kingdom of God would be. We invite God's rule and reign when we, when, we, when we say your kingdom come. We're inviting God's rule and his reign over us, over our own lives, over our church, over um, our freedoms or all the things that we think that we should be about. The kingdom 
is the coming to life of all the beauty and the goodness of creation as people are resurrected from sin and Satan and death and darkness into the glorious light that comes from Jesus. So when we say yes to the kingdom of God, when we say yes, we want your kingdom to come, we are saying yes to essentially all that Jesus was about and said. We're saying yes to the Sermon of the Mount, which is part of where this passage is. God's moral uh, way of living in the world. We're saying yes to the kingdom of God. We're saying yes to the Sermon on the Mount. We're saying yes to forgiveness of enemies. Yes to the Beatitudes. Yes to generosity. Yes to peace. Yes to loyalty. Yes to trusting God. And so when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, on earth as it is in heaven, we're saying, God, we want you to rule and reign. We want your beauty and your goodness and your righteousness to be infused throughout all of our lives and all of creation. We want your kingdom to rule and reign over any other kingdoms of this world that's, that are dominated by sin and the power of death. And so we got to watch Jesus and his life, and we got to see what the kingdom was all about by his actions and his words, what he would want his kingdom to be for. And it's oftentimes so different than the way of the world that's controlled by, by power and success and, 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 and defined by, just, by, by economics and um, force. And the kingdom of God is aligning our wills and our kingdoms to Jesus and giving the, handing those over to Jesus who was nailed on the cross for our sins. So I want to go a little bit more in depth into what the kingdom is and, and I hope that it, it begins to make sense because it's not a simple thing to understand, but it is God's rule and reign. And we see people enter into the kingdom of God. In John 3, uh, Jesus says, in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again, born anew, born afresh. That you have to leave kind of your, your old way of life or the old allegiances or your old kingdoms that you, uh, you, know, you gave your allegiance to. And now you trust and give your full allegiance to Jesus. And so when the kingdom comes, you know it's the kingdom. When Satan's dominion is pushed back, when it's rejected, when it's cast out. And I think that what's so hard for us, I think, to understand about the kingdom is that it seems like all the other kingdoms of the world are so much more powerful than the kingdom of God. I think we think about, and so I think we get tricked. I think we think, well, if we can just change this law or if we can just fix politics or if we can just do this thing, then, you know, that, that will fix everything. And, that, and that's important, right, to care about those things. But really it's above and be, like the kingdom of God is above and beyond those things. I think about the early Christians and their declaration was this. Jesus is Lord, right? Jesus is King. You know who also was called Lord and King? Caesar. Can you imagine how silly they must have felt at times to say that Jesus is King, that Jesus is Lord, when the Roman Empire was maybe the most powerful force in the history of the world, <laughs> the most powerful empire 
and Caesar, one of the greatest kings. So declare that, that the kingdom of God was at hand and that Jesus is the one true king as they were controlled and oppressed and mistreated and persecuted by one that seemed way more powerful, that had just put Jesus to death on a cross. But where's the Roman Empire now? You ever thought about that? It lasted for a few hundred years. But the kingdom of God is at hand. And there are thousands and thousands and millions upon millions, and even billions of people that would declare that Jesus is Lord. So what started off as this small conglomerate of, of, of people that gave up their lives to follow Jesus and declared that Jesus is Lord in the face of the Roman Empire now has grown to be billions of people worldwide. Maybe Jesus was right that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Do you realize that the kingdom of God will outlast the kingdom of the United States? It will. That one day our, our you know, nation, whether you uh, have misgivings about it or you think it's the greatest place on the face of the earth or you're in somewhere in between, uh, and that it will fall away and the kingdom of God will continue on. So my question to you this morning, maybe my challenge to you this morning is, uh, and maybe nobody in this room is saying, my allegiance is first and foremost to the United States. I don't think that that's probably a typical statement that many people would say in this room. But there are a lot of people that would probably, if you really got down to their heart, would say that that's true. And I think that what we have to keep in perspective is that the kingdom of God will outlast them all. And this is why any sort of allegiance to any sort of other nation or any other uh, person is so harmful to your own life. This is why it, can, it's, it's, it really comes down and becomes idolatry because you're believing in that thing or that person or that, uh, that kingdom above your allegiance to Christ. And so whenever people repent of their sins and believe the good news of Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand. When we reject other kingdoms to follow the one true king, whenever the kingdom of God is at hand, whenever we do the will of God, we are participating in bringing about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So the primary way in which the kingdom grows, I think, is when people are saved, when they're redeemed, when they're born again, as, as Jesus says in John 3. It's for when lost people are found. It's when Jesus runs after the one that's gone astray and brings them back into the fold. It's when people move from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light. That is like the, the primary way in which the kingdom advances. But I really do believe it's, just, it's beyond that as well. The kingdom of God grows. The kingdom of God advances when each one and every one of us follows Jesus, when we do the will of the Father. So when... We participate in people getting housing. When we stand up for truth, when we protest injustice, when we resist temptation, when we are generous, when we mourn with those who mourn, when we bear one another's burdens, when we share good news about the love of God with our neighbors and friends, when we create beauty, when we have 
when we bring about peace, when we have joy in the Holy Spirit, as it says in the New Testament, when demons are cast out, when the hungry are fed, when kids are cherished and cared for, when we welcome in others, when we speak words of knowledge over one another, when we speak truth to power, when we worship, when we, I already said this, but when we bring peace, when we forgive others, and on and on and on and on, the kingdom of God comes. And each and every one of us are like outposts for the kingdom of God. Some of you have been part of our church for a really long time. I've heard me talk about this before, so sorry. But um, early on in our, um, our church, God gave me this like really clear vision. And I was standing on top of the the red line stop on Lawrence, which is shut down for like three years now. But anyways, um, and so that's close to my house. So now I have to walk to Wilson or Argyle. Actually, Argyle shut down too, so I have to walk to Wilson. And, but I was standing up there, and it was early on, and I, and, and I, I remember seeing this, this picture of overcast clouds and like light just breaking through these, like the, the, the cloudiness. And it was landing in all these different places. It's landing on... Um, you know, all the different houses of people in our church and people that are not in our church. Maybe there was a light on Jesus' people's house, even though I didn't know any of you. Maybe there was a light on, uh, you know, like the Uptown Baptist down the church. Maybe there was a light on Cornerstone Shelter. Maybe there was a light on Alden Lakeland. Maybe there was a light nursing home. Maybe there was a light on Bryn Mawr Care. I, I don't remember where all the lights were, right? But I just remember it seeing like this is like the kingdom of God is breaking in and it's breaking in because individuals are becoming outposts and bringing about the kingdom of God wherever they live. And it may just be you, one in a hundred people in your building. And you're called to be a carrier of the kingdom to those people, an outpost of the kingdom. Maybe you live in a place with your family and everybody in your family is a Christian you're still called to be a carrier of the kingdom of God in those spaces. And so I just think that um, my challenge for you today is to really consider where your allegiances lie. To really consider whether you want the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. And how in your life can you be an outpost for the kingdom of God right here in the city of Chicago? And if we start to think about those things and we start to pray these things and we start to ask God to bring his kingdom, if we're willing to sell all we have to go buy a field where that, because the treasure of, of the kingdom of God is so valuable because Jesus is worth it, imagine what would happen in our lives. Imagine the intimacy we'd have with God. Imagine how our longings would change. Imagine how our lives would change. Imagine how our communities would change in our church. So today we say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.